As we continue in worship, I invite you to turn with me back in your copies of God's Word to our last scripture reading. It's Galatians chapter 4. And this evening, our text is just what you have in those lines, verses 21 to 31. We come really to the end of an argument that they began all the way in verse 14. But friend, I'd, remember, I'd remind you just for a moment that as the apostle comes to the church in Galatia, he comes with a certain tone. This is an acerbic, a very pointed rebuke that's given to the church in Galatia. But it's given, you remember, with these words as well. My little children of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. Beloved, the apostle is coming pastorally. Yes, he is coming forcefully. He is coming there with rebuke. But he comes describing himself as one who comes with pain. He comes with expectation that the Lord will work wonderfully in them and that he will indeed see Christ's likeness. But he comes in this case, beloved then, as that caring, as that loving physician of souls. He comes with the aim to reclaim them, Christ. Now, beloved, you remember as we look from verses 12 and following how the apostle does that at the start. He comes to them, first of all, as a great diagnostician. He comes to them, really, trying to persuade them that there has been this great alteration, this great change from the moment of their conversion to the moment when these legal preachers gained ascendancy among them. And so he makes a kind of contrast. The first thing he reminds them of is how he came to them. He came as a weak preacher. He came as a man with visible infirmity, with weakness. But he came preaching a gospel of free grace. And you remember how he describes his reception. The churches in Galatia received him, not as some contemptible man, but received him as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. And you remember how he describes that charitable disposition. They were so filled with love to Him, though contemptible in the eyes of the world, they were so filled with love to Him that they were willing to put out their own eyes that He might have them. But then you remember He makes that contrast. He comes to that time more recently when the legalist preachers had won them over. And He says they came with zeal. They came in strength. When I came weakly, they came, they came boasting and exhibiting their powers and strength. And they came, of course, preaching this legal doctrine. But what fruit did that bear in the church in Galatia? I, Paul, now have become your enemy. I was once, in your eyes, considered a man filled with grace. Blessed, you called me. But now, now you see me as does the rest of the world. A contemptible man, an enemy. What has changed? As, he's, as he closes that section, you remember, he simply leaves them with those words, I stand in doubt of you. You see, beloved, as we keep that in front of us, that will help us understand our text this evening. Because the apostle is really continuing the same train of thought. He's he's coming to the church in Galatia and he's coming to them with this contrast. He's saying, what what difference do you see in yourselves? 
First of all, under that preaching of free grace that you heard from me at the first. And now that legal preaching that you've adopted. What fruit or what different fruits have been produced under those different kinds of preaching? He's continuing the same thought. As you come to our text then this evening, he turns in verse 21 to ask them a question. Do ye not hear the law? Do ye not hear the law? Now, the sense here, you remember, is, 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 that, is this idea. Have you, not, have you not already discerned? Have you not in your own readings of Scripture discerned what the gospel of free grace produces in men and what a legal doctrine produces? But we'll see that in just a moment. He turns their attention to the text that we read, and it was also the 16th chapter of the book of Genesis as well, where he highlights for them this very well-known story, where there's a contrast between Sarah and Hagar, Isaac and Ishmael, and then even a contrast between Sinai and Zion, or Jerusalem. And what is his point? Well, first of all, friend, I want you to notice that there are, there's really... Two pairs of three. Uh, What you have here is this. Sarah represents Zion, represents heavenly Jerusalem. Whereas Hagar represents Sinai and earthly Jerusalem. And then, of course, you have Isaac and then Ishmael contrasted. Um, But, beloved, as we look at these things, he tells us that we're supposed to see them as he brings them to us as though they were an allegory. Now, friend, as we look at this text, it's important for me to say that 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 word comes to us in the English language laden with meaning that would be extraneous to a first century reader. In other words, the word allegory has a very specific meaning in our 21st century context that it did not have in the first century when the apostle used it in the first. You see, the idea behind allegory here is that of an, if you like, analogy or even an illustration. The apostle is not giving to us an allegory as we 21st century readers understand it. In other words, he's not saying that in, in these two chapters, Genesis 16 and Genesis 21, that there is some kind of hidden but necessarily mystical meaning behind the text. As though there are two meanings in the readings of scripture. That's not what the apostle is doing. And it would be wrong as well to apply a narrow use of the word type to this as well. You see, a narrow use of the word type refers to a a mode of revelation that is necessarily pointing beyond itself to its antitype. The apostle is not saying either of those things in our text. Instead, what he's doing is he's drawing down on that history for us, really as a pedagogue, as a teacher, to illustrate something, to, to, to make clearer what he's already given to us. And so, friend, if we read these verses and we come away more confused, then we've certainly missed the point. This is illustration for our, help, for, our, for our help and for our benefit. And it's illustration that reinforces what we've already reviewed. Those lines, verses 12 to 20, where the apostle is really asking a very basic question. Which preaching, which preaching induces likeness? To Christ, which preaching induces likeness? 
the children of promise. Our text this evening illustrates how the apostle is going to answer that. But beloved, the theme that comes to us this evening, very briefly stated, is this, that legalism cultivates bondage and persecution. Legalism cultivates bondage and persecution. And briefly in our time this evening, I want us to consider that as the apostle does in our text. I want us to consider the status or the, or the two different kinds of status that are in view. The strength that the apostle contrasts and then the strife that he sees. So take first of all the status that's in view. In verse 22 he says, there was one who was a bondmaid while the other was a free woman. Hagar was the bondmaid. Sarah was the free woman. And beloved, he's drawing a contrast here that we can't miss. He's comparing a legal status with a legal status. Hagar legally was a bondwoman. Sarah legally was free. And of course, as the apostle is going to tease out this analogy for us, he's, he's going to really drive us to think about what the apostle already has. Namely, that in terms of our righteousness with God, there are those who are under its curse and bondage, and there are those who have been liberated from that curse in Christ and who have been brought into freedom. We can't miss that the apostle is going to make that contrast further. But he even, he even makes this clear when he says, these are the two covenants. These are the two covenants. Now, friend, you need to keep in front of us as we read this text that the apostle is really using this as an illustration, and he's now interpreting the illustration for us. He's saying, first of all, when you think about the bondwoman, you need to be thinking about that covenant that is bondage to sinners. And when you think about Sarah, the free woman, you need to think about that covenant that brings liberation and freedom. That's the first step. And so what is that first covenant? Well, beloved, as we've been working through this epistle, the apostle is quite clear, isn't he? He's comparing administrations. He's contrasting the the old covenant administration with the new covenant. And what he's doing here is he's really making use of that old covenant administration to show that 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 part of the history of the church was most clear on the curse and less clear on grace. Now, beloved, again, I, I, can't, I can't belabor the point enough. The apostle is not saying that the old covenant was devoid of grace. That's not the point. The, the point is the very same that he makes in the book of Hebrews. He says in those sacrifices, there's a remembrance again made of sins every year. The, the old covenant in its very constitution, was supposed to remind the church again and again of the curse of the law. Yes, to point them forward to Christ and, and to see liberation and freedom and grace in Him. But nevertheless, out of the two administrations, the old covenant was to be clearer on the condemning power of the law. And why is he making this point time and again? You see, friend, the apostle is making this contrast with the Judaizers in view. You see, the Judaizers have really rejected the new covenant. And in rejecting the new covenant, then of necessity they have rejected that which was truly gracious about the old. And so all they have really wedded themselves to is the bondage, the curse that was so clear in the old covenant administration. Even in our own text, you have the apostle making it very clear that this is itself an aberration 
of the Old Covenant. If you notice that, he refers to Jerusalem, heavenly Jerusalem, as that which is like Sarah. That is, that is the covenant that brings freedom, liberation from the curse of the law. But he says that earthly Jerusalem has, as it were, returned to bondage. She has forgotten grace, rejected Christ. And so that's the first covenant. The second one, of course, is the gracious administration of the new. And here he envisions freedom and particularly has in view the promise of God. Now, beloved, as you look at this text, what you'll notice here is that the promise is really synecdoche, pointing us back to the fact that the apostle will highlight that salvation is only by the work of God's performance. This is what the Judaizers have rejected. But this is that which truly liberates. Now, as we work through this, beloved, just very briefly, in this, in this analogy already, you and I see that legalism sustains bondage. Legalism sustains bondage. The apostle writing of his own countrymen put it, puts it to us this way. Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. In other words, like Hagar, though, though there were so many things that she enjoyed, and her status in Abraham's home, she remained a bondwoman. She remained legally in the status of bondage and slavery. And so are those who are holding to a legal framework. They are, though notwithstanding all of their grand professions, and notwithstanding all of their great works, notwithstanding even their professions of faith in Christ, as did the Judaizers. They remain, nonetheless, in bondage. Beloved, you remember how this comes to us even in the Gospels. The rich young ruler comes professing great things, great obedience, great commitment to the law of God. And because he would not submit to Christ, because he didn't see his own sin, his own idolatry, because he could not relinquish those things, his own righteousness and worldly wealth, he went away. He went away unsaved, still under the bondage of sin, under the curse. But do you remember how the disciples responded to that? They said they were exceedingly amazed, saying, who then can be saved? You see, the apostles, the disciples rather, they understood very clearly that this was a staggering statement. That notwithstanding all of this man's professions, Christ was saying he still was under bondage. Still under the curse. And it leads them to that question, who then can be saved? Not only does it actually leave them so, but it even leaves them so by experience. The apostle refers to this as having the spirit of bondage which tends to fear, Romans 8. And beloved, that is what legalism induces. It induces souls to remain in bondage, not just legally before the throne of God, but it really does bind them in their souls. They remain Hagar. Now, beloved, as you look at this text, the apostle, of course, is highlighting for us 
the futility of legalism, reminding them that whatever the Judaizers are saying, they in fact are only, are only bringing them into bondage. That brings us, as we leave the status of these two, of these two groups of people, representing here, represented by Hagar and Sarah, we come to the strength, or really a contrast in strengths, in verse 27. There the apostle quotes for us from the prophet, Rejoice, thou barren that bearest not. And here he's referring to Zion. Here he's referring to heavenly Jerusalem, which again is like unto Sarah, just as Sinai is like unto Hagar. Now, why is he doing this? And how are we supposed to understand the illustration? Well, beloved, the answer to that is, is quite straightforward, isn't it? Think just for a moment, just for a moment about Sarah. She is the free woman. We've already seen that. Her status is the one that is the best. But in terms of strength, she's barren. You see, Sarah in this text comes out as the one who's contemptible and weak. Even though she's the child, she's the woman of freedom. But how does Hagar come out? Well, friend, as you look at this text, you recognize as well that, that Hagar comes out as the one who emerges most strong. It's most expected that she will produce that which God had promised, according to the flesh. What does Paul do here? Well, he really raises for us something of a reminder. Notwithstanding the fact that Sarah was more weak and contemptible in the eyes of men, notwithstanding all of the, all of the hope, human hopefulness that one could find in Hagar, it was Sarah. It was Sarah who would know the blessing. Now, beloved, as you look at this, you can't help but see, of course, parallels in what has gone before. I mean, you remember Paul comes to the church in Galatia, the weak and the contemptible preacher. He comes as the one who, who is very open, very clear to the congregation about his own infirmities. The legalist, on the other hand, comes with great zeal and with great boasting and would allure the affections of the Galatians with all of those trappings and ornaments that they set before them. You and I should already be detecting what the apostle is doing. Which one is actually blessed? Which one looks more like Sarah, the free woman who was barren, but who knew God's grace? And which one was the one that was really perhaps in the eyes of the world, most hopeful, esteemed most strong, but who could not bring forth the promised heir. If we keep that in front of us, beloved, then I think we understand the text even more clearly. Because here he's teaching us very clearly that legalism rejoices in human strength while it despises divine. I want you to notice how the scriptures present to us the boasting of the legalist. The apostle writes, Thou restest in the law, and makest thy boast of God, and knowest his will, and approvest the things that are more excellent, being instructed out of the law, and art more confident, that thou thyself art a guide of the blind, a light of them which are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes. 
Then he says this, he says, Thou therefore which teachest another, teachest thou not thyself. For all of their boasting, for all the great claims of the legal inclination, the apostle comes to it and he says, you've made great, great statements of trusting God. You've made great claims about your own, your own fidelity to the Lord and to his law. Can you not see that that you yourself are without the blessing? You yourself are still in sin. You require instruction. And see how that contrasts with the apostle himself. The apostle says this, Most gladly will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Do you see just for a moment how these two kinds of people are contrasted for us and how they relate to our text this evening? The legal inclination will boast in its own strength, will boast in that which mankind would expect good things from. While the gracious soul will boast in his infirmity because he sees there the strength and the glory of Christ most clearly. It's not only the case that these are those who boast in different things, but they make different choices. The legalist, the legalist will choose his own righteousness will boast in his own strength. But, but what does the gracious soul choose? Paul says, not having mine own righteousness which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Beloved, he's not saying that this is for him simply the only way, though it is. He's saying this is the way that he himself is inclined to choose. As one man put it centuries ago, the gracious soul is really inclined to take Christ and the freeness of his offers, even if there was another way. He prefers this way, even though this is the only saving way. He makes it his choice over that of a kind of feigned obedience to the covenant of works. So unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God, the wisdom of God, chosen by them as such. The thirdly and finally, as we close this evening, the apostle not only makes a contrast in terms of these two administrations, he also makes a contrast in terms of the children. He tells us in verse 29 that that which was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit. Of course, he's making a contrast in the illustration between Isaac and Ishmael. And beloved, this is the point of the illustration. Sarah and Hagar, Zion and Sinai, heavenly Jerusalem and earthly Jerusalem, they stand in contrast one from the other, but to this purpose. The purpose is to ask the question of the Galatians, which one? Which one have you come from? Are you more like, are you more like that child that came from fleshly strength, that came with thunder and with lightning and came with all the trappings of majesty, but came breathing out curses? Did you come from that line? Or, oh Galatians, did you come as it were, from that administration of freedom, 
That though weak and contemptible in the eyes of the world is actually the only way in which sinners are find, find the blessing of God. Are you, in other words, like Ishmael or like Isaac? Why is this so important? Well, friend, if you remember back to what the apostle says, he says really clearly, once you received me and now you persecute me. Once you called me blessed and now you call me your enemy. Which are you like? Are you like Ishmael or like Isaac? You see, beloved, this text teaches us that legalism actively persecutes the gracious. Very briefly, friend, to elaborate, all that that means here is that both intrinsically and, and outside of the soul, this is what the legal frame does. What do I mean? Well, friend, just for a moment, look at Galatians 5.17, where the apostle puts it to us this way. He says, the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. And of course, the apostle is channeling a conversation that he's going to raise with the Romans in Romans 7. But I want you to notice what he's saying here. In context... As he's dealing with the Judaizing heresy, the apostle is very clear. What is that which comes from the flesh? It's the legal frame. What's that which comes from the spirit? It is the gospel of free grace that makes men Christ-like. We don't spend a lot of time thinking about this, friend, but if you permit me to read something of a lengthy quote, I think we can be helped. Ralph Erskine put it to you this way. He said, why why do believers live so little to God and are so untender and unholy? It flows from this, that they are not perfectly dead to the law or perfectly freed from it. Much of a legal spirit remains, and the more that remains, the more unholy they are. The law weakens his hand and makes him think that God is a hard master, whereas the gospel in his conscience is the still, calm voice, sweetly entreating and alluring the heart to its obedience and conveying a secret strength to obey and making the soul to delight in the Lord's way. You see, what the text is teaching us, beloved, is even in the individual believer, Even in the individual believer, legal inclinations have a persecuting force against godliness. How was it that these ones who who were once converted to Christ would turn around and persecute the very one who preached to them first the free grace of God? I want you to notice he doesn't excommunicate them. He calls them brethren. Well, the reason... For that change is because, of course, that legal inclination resides. Not only will it persecute those without who are genuinely gracious, but as Ralph Erskine helpfully reminds us, it persecutes even the work of grace within the soul. It's only the gospel that makes men truly holy. And beloved, as you think about this text, of course, actively and externally, this is true. In a very concrete way, it was true in the first century. Was it not when Christ was rejected, when the gospel of free grace was turned out of the city of God? How did that manifest itself? 
Well, the apostle reminds us that that's earthly Jerusalem that is like Ishmael, persecuting the children of promise. Beloved, so often it's the case that the humble, so often it's the case that the contrite, that the conscientious believer will be persecuted not only by the world, but even in the church. Sometimes by the antinomian, the person who says that I don't need the law of God, and they'll turn to a conscientious and godly person and say, you're too scrupulous. That you don't really rest in grace. When all the while the person is simply humbly seeking to be more conformed to Christ's likeness. The legalist, on the other hand, will turn around and say, well, because this person is so tender and so gracious to sinners, because they have a heart and a compassion, a real love for the lost, surely they're compromised. And we could go on and on, but friend, that's something that takes place, as the apostle reminds us, not in the world. It took place in the churches in Galatia. In the church. Friend, we, we leave this text this evening, leaving the illustration and coming to its application, but, but how are we supposed to apply it? Well, I think, first of all, we need to be mindful that this is supposed to set before us something of, of our own heart. It is a kind of question that, that's to gauge our spiritual temperature. Which am I more like this evening? Am I more like, am I more like the one who is willing to come contemptibly and weak just that Christ might be exalted? Or do I come rather in my own strength? Do I come tasting what it is to be freed by Christ from the curse of the law and the bondage of sin and death? Or do I come boasting in my strength but still knowing that I am under the dominion of both? It's a searching question. But if I can quote once more from Ralph Erskine, I think we can be helped. I know not experience what you have, sirs, but some of us know that when our souls are most comforted and enlarged with the faith of God's favor through Christ and with the hope of his goodness, then we have most heart to do duty. And when through unbelief we have harsh thoughts of God as an angry judge, then we have no heart to duties and religious exercise. And I persuade myself this is the experience of all the saints in all ages. A text like ours this evening asks the question, which are you? Which am I? Am I enlarged? to run the way of God's commandments? Or does God appear to me harsh? A taskmaster whose yoke is not easy and whose burden is not light. Our text comes to us and says, well, then you resemble far more Ishmael than Isaac. The calling is to take hold of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. As the apostle does to be content to come in all of our weakness to him, that his strength might be magnified for the glory of his own name. May we be such people this evening. Amen.